0: Section 51 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter 15. Economic Change by William Cunningham. Part 3 the capitalist organization of industry was not confined to the more advanced communities but might be found in the most backward countries when the commercial conditions were favorable in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries when there was little export of cloth weavers guilds existed in london winchester beverly and other centers and the trade was probably conducted by independent workmen but the clothing trade of england was developed with increasing success so that in the 15th century, large quantities of woolen cloths were exported. It was evidently assuming the conditions of a capitalist trade, and was being organized by large employers. In England, the transition to the new condition of affairs took place with little friction. Weaving began to be practiced in villages where civic guilds had no jurisdiction, and the quality of the product was inspected by a royal officer so that the capitalist system of giving out materials to the weavers and buying their cloth was able to make its way imperceptibly. In continental towns, where there was a large number of independent masters strongly organized in craft guilds, a very decided antagonism prevailed between the old order and the new that was being gradually introduced. In France, the corps de métier assumed a more and more oligarchical character, as increasing obstacles were being put in the way of journeymen who aimed at attaining the status of independent masters a further indication of the same tendency and of the differentiation of the journeymen as a permanent class within the trade is found in the existence of journeymen guilds at Strasbourg and elsewhere the rise of a wealthy capitalist class within a craft guild intended, on the one hand, to change the character of the old association, and to make it a company of capitalists and traders, each of whom employed a large number of paid workmen, and, on the other hand, to call forth associations among the journeymen who had little hope of attaining to a higher status as independent masters, and who were therefore interested in maintaining favorable conditions for a wage-earning class. In other cases, the pressure of the changed conditions was most severely felt by the small masters, since the men with large capital and a growing trade were able to pay better wages. The capitalists and journeymen were then united in opposition to the small masters, who desired to retain the restrictions imposed by the old craft guilds. Where the conservative policy was successful, and the small independent masters held their own, the results were not satisfactory. The craft guilds could maintain the old rules, but they could not control the course of trade. Business migrated to the centers where it could be conducted on capitalistic lines. In Flanders and in England, we hear much of the conflict between urban and suburban workmen. This antagonism was partly due to the fact that the journeymen were inclined to migrate to districts where the rules which prevented them from setting up in business or working for capitalist employers could not be enforced. The trend of affairs was going against the old type of craft guild, and these institutions, insofar as they were incompatible with the investment of capital in industrial occupations, were bound to pass away. To some extent, however, they proved to be compatible with the new order. The craft guilds played an important part by exercising a right of search, and by insisting that the wares exposed for sale should be good in quality. Both in France and in England, they were retained, to some extent, as convenient instruments for the royal or parliamentary control of the conditions of work and the quality of the output. Occasionally, too, they retained their name and tradition, though they had changed their character and become associations of employers. At the close of the 16th century, the organization of industry by capitalists, which had been exceptional in the 14th century, had come to be an ordinary arrangement in the principal manufacturing centers. The freedom thus obtained for capitalist administration proved of immense importance in facilitating the planting of industries at new centers and in undeveloped lands. Under no circumstances is this a simple task, but in the Middle Ages and in the earlier part of modern times, it could only be accomplished by transferring skilled labor from one place to another it was through the migration of great employers with the labor which followed in their wake that the silk trade was developed in venice bologna genoa florence and france that an improved manufacture of woolen cloth was introduced into england under edward III. that the spanish cities responded in some degree to the call made upon them by colonial demand and that the manufactures of linen glass and pottery were introduced into france a most remarkable development of industry in the fifteenth century seems to have been carried through by the florentine capitalists who were interested in the dressing and dyeing of cloth they devoted themselves to encouraging the weaving of cloth in the wool-growing lands of the north in order to command a supply of the half-manufactured goods which could be so finished at florence as to be a most valuable article of commerce In medieval times, the industrial system had been intensely local in character, but as capital and capitalist organization were introduced, the local attachments were severed one by one. In the new era, the great employer is prepared to carry on business in any place and under any government where there is good prospect of working at a profit. In the preceding sections, an attempt has been made to show how the rising power of capitalism broke down the medieval forms of commercial and industrial regulation. The capitalists, who could not dominate them, migrated to places where they were free from old-fashioned restrictions. Capital offered facilities for the planting of new industries, the development of trade, and the opening up of mines and other natural advantages, so that the means lay at hand for promoting material progress of every kind. Hence, new questions of economic policy came to the front. The efforts of traders were no longer confined to retaining exclusive commercial rights, but they began to consider how the various resources within a given area might be developed so that by the interaction of different interests, the greatest material prosperity might be attained in the community as a whole. We have already seen that in the fifteenth century the french monarchs had come to be directly interested in the welfare of the trading as well as in that of the landed classes and at this period some of the german princes were becoming alive to the necessity of paying attention to all the different elements in the community other influences were at work elsewhere which tended to the growth of a new economic system many of the cities of italy and of germany had become great territorial powers And with a keen eye to business they were endeavoring to devise schemes of policy which should enable them to reap the greatest advantage from their acquisitions it is of course true that many european cities had from the earliest period of their development had landed possessions and agricultural interests and that the burgesses had enjoyed rights in respect of tillage and pasturage but the questions which arose under these old circumstances were very different from those which presented themselves to citizens ruling over a large province and controlling the development of a considerable territory. Several of the cities of Italy and of the Rhineland had attained to great political importance in the early part of the 14th century. In some cases, they were successful in military operations and extended their domain by conquest. In others, the power of some city promised protection and attracted neighbors to commend themselves to a civic superior. In other instances, land temporarily assigned to some town as a pledge for money borrowed was permanently transferred when the borrower proved quite unable to repay his debt. In these various ways, civic control came to be exercised over considerable areas, and civic authorities were concerned in regulating a large territory with its distinct and conflicting interests, in such a way as to produce the best results for the commonwealth as a whole. The great Italian towns, which were the seats of manufactures, had considerable difficulty in obtaining a sufficient food supply for the very large population which had been attracted to them or had grown up within their walls. Venice was forced to control the agricultural produce of her own district, and to prevent all other towns, such as Ancona, Ferrara, and Bologna, from competing with her in Lower Italy, the district from which she obtained corn, eggs, and other produce. To purchase these commodities, the neighboring towns were compelled to frequent the Venetian market. Florence and Milan, Bern and Basel, Ulm and Strasbourg had alike to give close attention to the question of food supply, and pursued a similar object though with such modifications as the special circumstances of each town might suggest there was a marked contrast between the expedients adopted by the venetians and those which commended themselves to the florentines the merchant princes of florence bought large estates in tuscany and devoted themselves to agriculture the conditions of the rural population were such that capitalist farming could be easily introduced serfdom had entirely disappeared in this neighborhood And money dealings permeated the whole fabric of rural society. But agriculture cannot have been a very profitable investment. The policy of the city was that of providing cheap food for the consumer. Export was forbidden, and the price at which corn might be sold was fixed by a tariff. Free access was given to foodstuffs imported from abroad, so that the farmer was not only restricted in his operations, but was obliged to contend with foreign competitors in the home markets. There is reason to believe that this policy must have pressed with great severity on the rural population. A maximum was fixed for the wages of labor, and the terms of their contracts were such that the loss from bad seasons fell on the cultivating tenants rather than the proprietor. The depression of the rural inhabitants in the interest of the consumers was disastrous, but many communities besides Florence were tempted to pursue this policy it seemed as if the peasant could be forced to carry on the work of tillage whatever pressure was put upon him there was little danger of his giving up rural occupations altogether while the advantage of cheap food to an industrial and trading community was obvious the cities were also concerned in the wise management of such parts of their territory as were suitable for pasturage partly for the sake of a supply of meat but also with the view of procuring wool the Florentines had large flocks upon the Maremma, for the obtaining of raw material was of primary importance to the Arte Dallana. We also find evidences of the introduction of sericulture in the neighborhood of the towns where the weaving of silk had been introduced. The provision of raw material and of a proper food supply were the two main points in the economic policy which the towns pursued in the large territories under their control. This practice of treating town and country avocations as part of one economic whole was commonly adopted, though it had hardly been definitely formulated in the 15th century, but the general principles which it involved had at least been so far thought out that they could be habitually assumed in the political writings of Machiavelli. He is quite clear as to the necessity of subordinating the interest of the citizen to that of the state. The civic policy of the Middle Ages had been that of severing different trading bodies and keeping them from encroaching on one another rather than of subordinating all to an ulterior object. With Machiavelli, the ulterior object towards which all commercial activities should be directed is the power of the prince. He points out that measures which tend to increase the wealth of the prince without enriching the people provide the firmest basis for absolute power. Such ideas were widely current at the beginning of the 16th century, and they may easily have affected the statesmen who were guiding the destinies of the rising nationalities of Europe. In many countries, all the elements that combined to form a true national life were present, for there was a common stock, a common language, and a common law. But the fusion was incomplete, and local divisions were deep and real. The ambitions which were opened up by the Age of Discovery strengthened national sentiment by affording an unlimited field for national rivalries, and the religious differences, which accentuated the divisions of Christendom, rendered the sense of national religion a convenient badge in warfare. These positive elements in the growth of national life were strengthened in any country where a territorial economic policy was adopted, so as to bring out a community of interest among the citizens, and to give solidarity to the whole social system. Definite schemes for the development of material resources, with a view to one supreme object, involved the suppression of local privileges and the increase of commercial intercourse, and this tended in its turn to give the opportunity for the healthy interaction of rural, urban, and commercial life upon each other. As the economic life of a country adapted itself to these new conditions, and as appropriate institutions were organized, the body economic came to be reconstituted on a national, not as of old on a civic basis. The recognition of ties of common interest throughout a large territory gave definite shape to the groups which were pervaded by similar sentiments of race and religion. The sense of economic welfare as something common to the whole of a country strengthened the bonds which united each rising nationality in a common economic life that was of importance to all citizens alike in the earlier sections of this chapter it has seemed convenient to deal chiefly with the rise of capital and the influence of its growing power over the economic institutions of medieval cities the city was the type of economic organization which had flourished in the ancient and in the medieval world but it was not adequate to the requirements of modern life and the old associations were disintegrated and destroyed in the sixteenth century we see the signs of real reconstruction and the growth of economic institutions and regulations which were compatible with capitalistic enterprise both in industry and commerce even though this was still restricted within limits that we regard as narrow one nation after another adopted a territorial economic policy which implied the conscious subordination of certain private interests to the welfare of the realm the conscious development of the resources of the country, and the conscious building up of the sinews of national power. The main feature of this territorial economic policy was similar in the case of all nations. All the rivals desired to accumulate treasure as the means of equipping or of hiring armies, but there were different methods by which this aim could be attained, and different subordinate objects to be pursued according to the circumstances of each particular country. To these we must now turn, for by briefly tracing the special schemes of territorial development which were adopted in Spain, England, and France respectively, we shall see most clearly the nature of the enlarged body economic which has come into prominence in modern times. The discovery of America by Colombo gave the Spaniards access to an enormous territory of which they were complete masters. And which they were free to develop on any lines that seemed good to them. It is no part of our present purpose to discuss by itself the colonial policy which the monarchs followed. We have rather to consider the aims pursued by them for their empire as a whole. The large mass of bullion that was imported, together with the great commercial opportunities that were opened up, exercised a remarkable influence upon economic conditions in the peninsula. The amount of gold and silver which the spaniards acquired was quite unprecedented and might have been used to form a very large capital indeed the west india islands supplied increasing quantities of gold from the time of their discovery until 1516 in 1522 the exploitation of mexico began silver was acquired in greater and greater masses and the introduction in 1557 of a simpler process of reduction of the ore by means of quicksilver diminished the cost of production and still further augmented the yield of bullion in fifteen thirty three the spaniards also obtained access to peru from which additional supplies of silver were procured altogether an enormous stream of bullion poured into spain during the whole of the sixteenth century The Spaniards were able to rely on the best possible advice as to the organization of business of every kind. Genoese financiers were ready to give every assistance, and the South German capitalists, who had so much experience of mining and enterprise of every sort, were closely attached to the interests of Charles V. After his accession to the throne of Spain, they were attracted to that country in large numbers, as great privileges were conferred upon them they were able to take part in colonization and to engage directly in mining the fuggers undertook to develop the quicksilver deposits of Almaden. they formed business connections in the new world and founded settlements in peru the welsers established a colony in venezuela and undertook copper mining in san domingo There was at the same time an incursion, chiefly to Seville, of other German capitalists who were prepared to devote their energies to developing the industrial arts of Spain. With all these material and technical advantages, it seems extraordinary that the dreams of Charles V and Philip II were not realized, and that they failed to build up such a military power as would have enabled them to establish a complete supremacy in Europe it would be exceedingly interesting if we were able to examine in detail the extent to which the precious metals came into circulation in spain and the precise course of economic affairs in different parts of the country but the material for such an inquiry does not appear to be forthcoming yet one thing is obvious the spanish colonists devoted themselves almost entirely to mining for the precious metals and they were largely dependent for their supply of food of all kinds on the mother country this caused an increased demand for corn in spain and a rapid rise of prices there as the colonists were able to pay large sums for the necessaries of life charles v indeed endeavored to carry out works of irrigation and to increase the food supply by bringing a larger area under cultivation but tillage could not be developed so as to meet the new demands the methods of cultivation already in vogue were as high as was generally practicable in the existing state of society the vine and olive growers on the one hand and the pasture farmers on the other resented any encroachments on the land at their disposal so that it was impossible to bring a larger area under crop so powerful were the mesta a great corporation of sheep farmers that they were actually able in fifteen fifty two to insist that crown and church land which had been brought under tillage should revert to pasture the result was inevitable food became dearer and the government was forced to recognize the fact by raising the maximum limit of price. As a consequence, the necessary outlay of all classes increased, while a large part of the population were not compensated by the profit obtained through the new facilities for trade. Under ordinary circumstances, the increase in the price of food would have been merely injurious to industry. It would necessitate a larger outlay in the expenses of production, and would leave less margin for profit, and no opportunity for the formation of capital. Ultimately, this seems to have been the effect on Spanish manufacturers, and the high cost of production in the peninsula rendered it possible for other European countries, where the range of prices was lower, to undersell the Spanish producer in the home market. No serious attempt was made by the government to check this tendency, as the policy pursued was in the main that of favoring the consumer, and protective tariffs were not introduced the circumstances which prevailed in spain at the beginning of the sixteenth century were however quite exceptional and as a matter of fact there seems to have been a considerable though short-lived development of industry the colonists not only imported their food but manufactures as well there was a sudden increase in the demand both for textile goods and for hardware to meet the american requirements And, of course, there was a great rise of prices. The small, independent masters working on the old industrial system were unable to cope with this new state of affairs, but the foreign capitalists saw their opportunity. Manufacturing of every kind was organized on a large scale at Toledo and other centers. Wages rose enormously, and a great influx of population was attracted into the city. This was doubtless drawn to some extent from the rural districts, but the stream must have been considerably augmented by the immigration of French and Italians. Hence it appears that this rapid industrial development was merely an excrescence which had no very deep attachment to the country. The Spaniards themselves appear to have regarded it as an intrusion and to have resented it accordingly. The Spanish gentry had no means of paying the increased prices which the colonial demand had occasioned, for natural economy was still in vogue in many rural districts indeed this revolution in industry must have given rise to many social grievances the craftsmen of the old school would suffer from the competition of the capitalist in his own trade while the great rise of prices to consumers was attributed to the greed of the foreigner the government was persuaded to pass measures which imposed disabilities on foreign capitalists it succeeded in forcing the withdrawal of the french and italian workmen as well as in expelling the moriscos As these changes ensued, the foreign capitalists were doubtless successful in transferring large portions of their capital to other lands, but the decline of alien competition on Spanish soil did not enable native manufacturers to take their place or to recover the lost ground. With the new scale of outlay, they had little opportunity for forming capital, and the bourgeois class may not have had the skill for organizing business on the new lines on the whole it appears that the large colonial demands for food on the one hand and the large supplies of foreign manufactures on the other prevented a healthy reaction of commercial on agricultural and industrial development spain was left exhausted by the feverish activity which had been temporarily induced and which passed away the spanish government was firmly convinced that the best means of promoting the power of the country Was by hoarding the large share of the produce of the mines which came into their possession and they made frequent efforts to prevent the export of any bullion into other parts of europe though the genoese and german capitalists had special licenses which allowed them to transmit it it is obviously impossible that the government could have succeeded in enforcing this prohibition under the existing conditions of trade most of the bullion which arrived at seville belonged to the merchants and manufacturers who were concerned in supplying the colonial demand for goods the ingots which were not taken to the mint may have been hoarded for a time but the foreign capitalists would not allow their money to lie idle and much of it must have been exported in spite of all laws to the contrary to pay for the cheaper manufactures which were coming in from abroad Comparatively little coin could have passed into general circulation in Spain itself. Payments from the towns for agricultural produce would scarcely overbalance the payments due from the country for the dearer manufactured goods. The Spanish rulers had ignorantly and unintentionally pursued the precise course of policy recommended by Machiavelli. They had sought to accumulate treasure in the coffers of the state, and they had, by their mistaken measures, allowed the subjects to continue poor the wealth which passed into the country had no steady and persistent reaction on industrial and agricultural life and when the military exigencies of philip's policy reduced him to bankruptcy it became obvious to the world that the spaniards had completely misused the unique opportunities which lay within their grasp they had sacrificed everything else to the accumulation of treasure by the crown and they had completely failed to attain the one object on which they had concentrated all their efforts The permanent gain from the treasure imported into Europe went to those countries which were able to employ it as capital for industrial or agricultural improvement, and Spain could do neither. There was every prospect at one time that the greatest advantage would be reaped by Spanish subjects in the Netherlands. The policy of the government, however, and the failure of the Duke of Alva to recognize the importance of trading interests rendered this impossible. The war in the Low Countries not only caused the migration of industry from that part of Spanish territory, but tended to bring about the collapse of the great capitalists who had allied themselves to the Spanish interest. The foreigners were being gradually excluded from taking any direct part in the new industrial developments in Spain. They confined themselves more and more to banking business and to financial operations in the government service. But the persistent failure of the Spanish and imperial policy in one country after another had the effect of crippling several of the great Genoese and German houses, and at length drained the resources, even of such millionaires as the Fuggers. The decline of these bankers proved that the control of the treasure of the New World was passing into other hands as a matter of fact it was shifting more and more into the possession of the dutch who were making their country a harbor of refuge for persons expelled from the spanish netherlands and who were building up a great center of commercial and industrial life at amsterdam at the beginning of the seventeenth century the people of holland had succeeded in winning the greater part of the gains which accrued from the portuguese discoveries while they had also succeeded in drawing to themselves a large share of the treasure of spanish america and in using it as capital in commerce, in shipping, and in industrial pursuits. It was the nemesis of the policy of his Catholic majesty that his subjects failed to derive real advantage from the much-vaunted American possessions, and that the gains which might have enriched the peninsula went to his bitterest enemies. End of section 51. Recording by Colleen McMahon.